Welcome to episode 8 of Song Chronicles. In this episode, we'll delve into the behind-the-scenes roles that producers and engineers play in record-making in a fascinating, insightful conversation with the legendary Al Schmidt. The 90-year-old engineer and producer has had a -a one-of-a-kind career spanning upwards of seven decades, claiming more than 20 Grammys and the deep respect of his peers along the way. And he's not finished yet. His discography reads like a who's who of popular music. Frank Sinatra, Duke Ellington, Sam Cooke, Barbara Streisand, Henry Mancini, Ray Charles, Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, Shelby Lynn, Willie Nelson, Neil Young, Steely Dan, Celine Dion, Quincy Jones, Toto, Jackson Brown, Jefferson Airplane, and Queen Latifah. And that's just scratching the surface of his long, illustrious career, which you can also read about in his memoir, On the Record, written with Maureen Droney. I met Al when he came to speak to the students of the Blackbird Academy's audio engineering program that I took last year in Nashville. This conversation took place on August 4th. Al talks about how he got a start in the music business, the pivotal role Duke Ellington played in his career, his engineering style, and what he hated about being a producer. Song Chronicles is proud to present a conversation with Al Schmidt. And you look so healthy and all who love you are so grateful that you're so healthy and you're still with us making records. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I just finished mixing uh, a great record with uh, Diana Krall. That'll be out in September. And then um, another one with Melody Gardot. And I'm not sure when that'll be out, but it'll be out pretty soon. And that's it. I'm kind of slowing down, just picking things I really want to do. And yeah. Well, those sound like great projects to do. Of course, I'm guessing they're both at Capitol. Yeah. It's uh, my second home. And uh, I love it there. I love working there. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of studios I work at, but given my choice, Capital is number one. Yeah. You want to talk about Steve Genowick and and Nico since we're talking about Capital now in your second home? Well, sure. Uh, Steve Genowick has been my assistant now for almost 20 years, I guess. About 20 years. You know, it doesn't get any better than Steve as an assistant. Plus the fact that he knows exactly how I work. So, um, you know, we're a team and, uh, and we work together so, so smoothly and easily, you know. And we're good friends on top of that. And he keeps me kind of up to date on all the new technology and so forth. And I'm grateful for that. As far as Nico Bolas is concerned, He's like a brother to me, you know. I mean, we are very close, Nico and I, and I love him. And uh, we've just started maybe doing a couple things together on projects. And uh, so we're going to see where that goes. Um, 
I think uh, I think it'll go very well. We get along great. We both have similar ideas on things, and uh, yeah. So uh, I'm I'm kind of looking forward to that. Uh, I love spending time with Nico. He laughs a lot. He makes people laugh. I mean, he makes it just so enjoyable to be around, and uh, that you don't get much at in this business, you know? A lot of people are grumpy or whatever, but he's always smiling and happy and uh, and it makes me smile. So can't he, ask for that. Yeah, and he's the best. And he and I yes, go back a ways too, and yeah. I love him. So there's so much to talk about. I do want to jump back to a little side footnote that a lot of people don't know, but you were a boxer at one point, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I was a boxer for the CYO, the Catholic Youth Organization. And then when I went into the Navy, I got on the uh, Navy boxing team, and I was on the Navy boxing team for about six months. And uh, and then I had my nose broken pretty bad, and so that was the end of my boxing career. Yeah, and then you were you were working for your uncle. Is that how you started? No, I never worked for my uncle. You know, he was my father's brother. So he was my uncle in that sense, but he was also my godfather. And he didn't have any children. And from the time my father would bring me over to see him, uh, we lived in Brooklyn. His his studio was in Manhattan. And uh, my father would bring me over and I'd be there and he would show me things and delays and all you know, what was going on at that time and microphones. So when I got to be about eight, I was able to get on the subway, which was a few blocks from my house and go over to 46th Street, 47th Street in New York, and then walk back a block to where his studio was on 2 West 46th. I can't believe I still remember that address. Anyway, uh, and I would go and spend the weekend with him. And, you know, Les Paul was his best friend. So Les Paul was my Uncle Les. And they would take me to bars and they would take me to the fights and hockey games and stuff like that. But I got to meet so many people like Bing Crosby and the Anders sisters and Orson Welles. And it just was on and on and on. So, you know, my uncle lived on an apartment on Riverside Drive, which had a beautiful view of um, of the uh, the East River. So I always wanted to be like him. He dressed nice. He always had a lot of cash. Um, everybody knew him. Um, we'd go to restaurants and get great tables, things like that. So he And he had such a glamorous life. That's what I wanted to be like, you know, I just, uh, so I kept going to the studio and I would set up chairs and tell the musicians when they had to take their shoes off, because you could hear the foot stomping and stuff like that. And uh, I was kind of, you know, just a clean up chip off the uh, cutting head. They didn't have suction in those days it was a mink brush. So I would do that. It's just on and on, things like that. It was just glamorous. 
then when I got to be about 13 and I was boxing in the CYO and I started hanging out with a gang of guys that were getting in a lot of trouble. So on my 17th birthday, I got my parents to uh, sign me a letter so I could go in the Navy at 17. And they did. So uh, I was in the Navy for a few years. When I came out of the Navy, I was home for a couple of weeks and the phone, I didn't know what I was going to do. I think I was thinking of going back to college, but the phone rang and it was my uncle. And he said, a friend of his had a recording studio and they were looking for an apprentice. Would I be interested? And I said, boy, you bet I would. I didn't have any plans other than school. So fine. Uh, he set up the appointment. I went over, I met the owner of the studio and, um, uh, he uh, he liked me. I knew I was going to get the job anyway because my uncle and this guy were best of friends. So I'm sure, you know, it was all set up. Anyway, he said, come in on Monday, 9 o'clock. I'll introduce you to the staff and you can get going. So I showed up Monday bright and early and uh, got there. And he took me in and introduced me to uh, the two engineers that were there. One was a German engineer by the name of Otto, something Otto. Anyway, he wore a monocle. Um, it's very <laughs> funny. And the other guy was Tom Dowd, Tommy Dowd. And Tommy was like 26 at the time. I was 19. And uh, so we hit it off. And I became Tommy's kind of gopher and go-to guy. And he bought me a notebook and had me, you know, draw diagrams of setups and what mics he used. And, you know, we only had like an eight input board, six or eight inputs. So that's all the mics we could use. Mm -hmm. So we had to learn how to balance things like, you know, upright bass and rhythm guitar on the same mic. And then sometimes even piano and upright bass we'd put on a stool and then we'd have the piano between the mic between the piano and the upright bass. And we'd go in and listen and then we'd go out, move the mic if we needed a little more piano closer to the piano and listen again until we got a balance between the two. And that, that was the way I was taught. I was taught to go out, listen to what's out there, then come in and try to capture what you're hearing out there. So I had some great teachers from my uncle, certainly at the beginning, who told me, you have to treat your equipment like a Swiss watch. And if you do, it will take good care of you. So I always remember that. I always took good care of my equipment. I never had coffee on the, uh, on the console and that kind of stuff. And I always wanted to, you know, make sure everything was neat and clean and in its place. So I had some great teachers. You know, and, and, and certainly Tommy Dowd was one of the great engineers of all time. He's made some of the greatest records, and, uh, and he was one of my dearest friends. And we hung out as after work, we'd go to hockey games. He was a hockey fan, too. You know, or restaurants, or go to the bar and have a few drinks. So that was my start, basically. Can you tell the story about how the jazz band came out of the elevator and all you had was your little notebook? <laughs> I've told this story so many times, but um, I was there a couple months 
about three months. And uh, they said, okay, Al, you're, you're qualified enough. You can come in on Saturday and do the little uh, demo things that we had. And Saturday was a day when somebody would come in and play guitar and sing happy birthday to their child or something. We'd cut the record and give it to them. They'd give us 15 bucks and they'd leave. And then another guy came in and uh, he wrote a song and he played piano and sang the song and we cut the demo. So one was at 10, one was at 12. And, and, uh, and then two o'clock, I was uh, waiting for a, a client. And uh, the elevator doors opened up. I always like to greet people when they come off the elevator. We were on the second floor. And uh, all these musicians started coming out. They said, where's the studio? And I said, well, it's right there, but why? Yeah, well, we're here for a recording session. I said, oh, no, you must have the wrong place. And the guy I was waiting for us was Mr. Mercer. Well, the guy said to me, Mercer Ellington, Duke Ellington's son? And I said, what? He said, yeah, we're here for a session. So I said, well, the studio's in there. And I went, I tried to call Tommy. This is way before cell phones. <laughs> tried to call Tommy, tried to call my boss, couldn't reach anybody. So Tommy had given me a book. And I was drawing all these diagrams. So I knew there was one with a big band and I went and found it. And I, uh, I ran out and I started setting up. The guys were warming up and all these, you know, these musicians who were all my idols, people I just adored, you know, and they're all coming in. Uh, and I'm setting up as quick as I can. Fortunately, we only had six or eight mics to set up. So, and, um, so I'm back in it now, back while the guys are warming up. I'm back in the control room, and Duke Ellington walks in. And I kept saying to uh, to Duke Ellington, I said, Mr. Ellington, there's a big mistake here. I'm, I'm not qualified to do this. And he looked out in the studio, and he said, well, the guys seem to be comfortable. They're warming up, and everything looks good out there. So he said, why can't you do it? I said, well, I've never done anything like this. He said, well, it's always a first. And we that was it. And, you know, he stayed with me right next to me. And he kept patting me on the leg. And he kept saying, don't worry, son. We're going to get through this. It's going to be fine. And he just calmed me down. I guess he took one look at me and knew I was ready to fall apart any second. You know, <laughs> So he treated me really kindly. And, uh, and that was it. That was my first. Big band date, and I've been a big bands have been a favorite of mine forever. Those are my favorite things to record: big bands and large string orchestras. That's just the best story. Thank you for telling it again. Sure. You know, you talk about big bands, and I know you do a lot of you know hundred piece orchestral dates at Capitol, and I know you did a lot with Neil Young recently, and. You know, a little bit of love. And t tell me about how you love to go straight to disc and, and mix in the room with the mic placements. Can you talk a little about that? Well, you talking about before we had a tape machine? To a two bus, basically, to the mix, whatever it would be going to. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's when I, when I learned you recorded everything, what you heard in the speakers was what you got. There was no fixing anything later. Yeah. So we couldn't go in and do anything. 
So that was it. And that went on for years. And even when I came to California, you know, I came to California in 58. And, uh, yeah, we, we, everything we did was mono and two track. And, and what you heard was what you got. There was no mixing or fixing stuff later. You could edit maybe between takes on, on the tape machine, but, uh, I, that was it. So, you know, we just learned. I went now when I record, I'm always thinking about where I'm going to place things in the mix. I put things, you know, uh, while I'm recording, I ride gain while I'm recording. You know, if there's a solo, I ride gain on that. If it's a vocalist, I'll ride gain on the vocals. Um, you know, I did, we didn't have a compressor or an equalizer when I started. So, uh, we had to do everything by hand and they were rotary, um, uh, faders. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Am I ranting on here? No, <laughs> so, it's, it's good. I mean, it's probably technical for some people, but it's fascinating. And I'm sure everyone listening would appreciate, you know, the journey of going from that to multi-tracks and, and all the technological options that people have. Right. It seems like you still, love doing it in the way where it's right the first time you don't have yeah, to Yeah, exactly that's what i do and so when we get in the mix i mean it's just about mix we know where everything's going to be laid out and i've i've written like you know if if it's a big band and the trumpets it's a big tooty thing and everybody's playing at once and then they go to uh harmon mutes steve Genowick, will cue me. He'll say, Alan, two bars, they go to Harmon Mutes. So I know then that when, after they they play the tuning part, they're going to Harmon Mutes, I got to bring up the Harmon Mutes and I, I bring them up to tape or to Pro Tools, whatever you we're using. So I ride gain on things as it's going down. Mm-hmm. So later on, that's all done. So you made a jump from being a recording engineer and then you pitched yourself to be the producer and you got the gig to be the producer, but because of the union, you weren't allowed to touch the board anymore. As a yeah. yeah, at RCA, when they promoted me to, uh, to the A&R department as a producer, uh, that was it. I couldn't touch the board anymore. And, and that went on for, I don't know, six, seven years. And, uh, and I hated it because... I could reach over and do something like on the echo or whatever in the spot. And, uh, and then they would call me up on the carpet for touching the board. But it was, by the time I told the engineer what I wanted and he was going to do it, it was too late. So, you know, it, I kept getting called up on the carpet. Anyway, so I wound up, uh, producing a bunch of acts for, RCA, and I was at one point producing Eddie Fisher in the afternoon and the Jefferson Airplane at night. I was working, you know, with Eddie would be two to five, and then Jefferson Airplane would be eight till three, four in the morning. And by the time I got home, I'd get a little sleep. I'd have to come back to work because I had 11 artists that I was taking care of. So I had to do budgets. I had to Hire arrangers for artists. I, uh, you know, I had to find songs. Not all artists wrote their own songs. Guys like Eddie Fisher didn't write songs. And 
and uh, so so it was um, it was killing me. And I called my boss at that time in New York, and I said, uh, "Ernie, uh, you got to get somebody in here to do uh, Eddie Fisher." And I told him, you know, I said, "I'm doing Eddie. I'm doing the Jefferson Airplane. I'm working till four in the morning. I get a little." two, three hours sleep, and I'm back at it again. And if you could get somebody to do Eddie Fisher, that would be great. And he said to me, Al, truck drivers do it. And it just stopped me cold in my tracks. And I said, really? He says, yeah. And I said, well, get yourself a couple of t- truck drivers. I quit. And I sent him my letter of resignation the next morning. I gave him two weeks notice, and that was it. So... I was home for two weeks, having no idea what I was going to do. I, I can't believe I quit my job, a great job. And, you know, it was nuts. But I got a call from the Jefferson Airplane, the management, and they said, look, Al, they love working with you, and there's nobody at RCA they want to work with. And RCA said they'll give you a fee and points if you produce the record. So I said, Sure. So at that was it. I went in. I finished uh, after bathing at Baxter's, and uh, that did very well. Uh, I wound up doing four albums with the airplane as a producer. Uh, I worked a lot for their company too, Grunt Records. I did a bunch of records for them. So yeah, so I started getting busy, and people uh, people were calling me, you know, to produce some records and. And, you know, I, Tommy LaPuma and I were close, close friends. And he was a music publisher at one time. I mean, he brought me songs for my artists, but we came really good friends and we started hanging out together all the time. Then he became a producer and he had a couple of hits. He did Guantanamo, which was a big hit. Anyway, he was doing a record with Dave, uh, Dave Mason. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bruce Bodnick was engineering it. And Bruce had a prior commitment to do the start the Doors record on a certain date. And he had a lead. So Tommy didn't know what he was going to do. And he finally said, hey, Al, you were a good engineer. Why don't you do it? I said, oh, Tommy, I, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I forgot. So he said, no, it's like riding a bike. So I said, all right. If I if I feel I'm not doing well, you gotta let me go. And if you feel I'm not doing well, you gotta let me go. So he said, agreed. He shook hands. We were dear friends. And I mixed alone together. And while I was mixing it, I realized how much I missed hands on the board. And uh so it got me into uh back into engineering. And then I you know, I did uh Late for the Sky with Jackson Brown, which I co-produced and uh and engineered, and I did uh, On the Beach with uh, Neil, and uh, which I co-produced and, and engineered. So I was getting uh, a lot of work. So people were starting to uh, realize they could hire me as an engineer. I did the first two Earth, Wind, and Fire albums. So I started back in, uh, in full glory and uh, happy as a lark. That's that's beautiful. And it, it just sounds like work. You know, actually, I was watching the Wrecking Crew movie and, you know, they were just talking about how they did a session in the morning, a session in the afternoon, a session in the evening. They never saw their kids. And 
you know, even though we could watch it and go, that looks like so much fun. You know, there was this element of, I don't have a life or a, a healthy family life when I go home because I'm just working. Do you feel like you're able to get balance in your life with work? And Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know what? I'm at a point now where if I, if I want to do something, I do. And if I don't, I don't. But, you know, the great thing about being an engineer at RCA was I would go in Monday and I would have maybe nine to 12, I can Tina Turner and the Icats. And then from two to five, there was a singer by the name of Gogi Grant. And I would record her with a big band. And then eight to 11, it would be Henry Mancini. And then the following day, it would be something else in the morning, a polka band. Um, and in the afternoon, it would be Yasha Heifetz and, uh, and Rubenstein. And, uh, and then at night, Billy Eckstein and Billy May. Uh, you know, so I got to do all kinds of music. Music, I, di- I didn't like polka music at all. And, but I would concentrate on getting the best accordion polka sound that they've ever heard. And I was, that was my, my motivation, you know, because I, 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 I didn't like polka music at all. But I did my best to get them, to, you know, to record it and record it well. And it's a, it's an amazing service to be able to walk into a room and know that you're in the best hands you can possibly be in whatever whatever music you're doing. So I'm sure they were very grateful and probably yeah. did, probably didn't know you didn't like polka at the time. No, no, they didn't. I didn't say anything, but you know, not everything we did was was uh, joyful or really looking forward to it. Mancini dates were always incredible. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, you read my mind. Can you talk, those are just incredible sounding recordings. Uh, can you talk about that? Sure. Well, the first thing we did, um, I was still at uh, Radio Recorders, 1958, I guess. And uh, the Peter Gunn album uh, was being recorded and uh, Bones Howe was the engineer. And the producer was a guy by the name of Cy Rady. And for something happened after they did the first four songs or so, and uh, and they kind of parted ways. I don't know exactly what the reason was, but they did. And he got he asked for me, so I started doing Mancini. And then, because of him and another producer at RCA, Dick Pierce, I started doing a lot of the RCA work at Radio Recorders. And then RCA opened their studio at, in the NBC building on Sunset Mine, and, uh, and they hired me. I was the first engineer they hired. So I went over there, and there were two rooms, one large room, one a little smaller, and they were two of the best-sounding rooms I'd ever worked in. And that's where all those great Mancini things were done, in those rooms. Great. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's it's back to the room again, too, because the room is, seems to be another one of the players in the whole sound. Well, the room, it's one of the things that I do, I don't know, you know, more and more people, I think, are doing it now, but almost every microphone I put up I, uh, is in Omni. I like the bleed, and if you have good microphones, really good microphones, and you get bleed, uh, it, it's a good 
bleed you, getting the room and, and all. And if you have cheap microphones or little mono microphones, that uh, you don't get that. Or you get cheap uh, bleed and nobody wants that. So the bleed is what gives, because I'm taking so much of the room, it gives the depth of what I'm doing. And uh, anyway, so I've always been an experimenter with microphones and how to set up things. And, uh, you know, I, I remember at RCA, I would set up a big band one day and the next day I'd set them up exactly the opposite and I'd move them around the room until I got the best place, you know. And I was doing Harry James, and I did about six or seven albums with Harry James, big band. Yeah. So I was in demand. People wanted me all the time. And uh, and it was nice, except I was, as I say, I was working hard. Bill Putnam, who owned United Recording, wanted to hire me. I did these, uh, I did country and western part of volume two, Ray Charles, and he had done the, the first one. And then I did Ray Charles uh, and Betty Carter, that album. And so he he was thinking of backing off and he wanted to hire me uh, to go to work for United. And so I went and talked to my boss, Steve Scholes. He's the guy that signed Elvis to RCA for $35,000. Amazing. Anyway, he was a sweet man, nice man. And I told him uh, what was going to happen. I wanted to get into production because in those days, I felt the producers were getting all the credit. So he said, okay, but you have to bring someone in and train someone to record Henry Mancini. So a friend of mine that worked at uh, Radio Recorders, Jim Malloy, uh, I called him on the phone and uh, talked to him, and I got him a job at RCA, and then I sat with him on all the uh, uh, Mancini dates there for a while. And he's the guy that wound up doing the Pink Panther theme. And, yeah, he became a really good engineer and a very good record producer and moved to uh, Nashville and did a lot of country records. Anyway. Yeah. Well, for people who aren't, you know, familiar with microphones, Omni, which you said you, is, uh, that's where it can pick up everything all around the mic instead of what's directly in front of the mic. Yeah, yeah, or like a ribbon mic, uh, like a 44 a DX that's open front and back or any of the royal mics that are open front and back. Uh, those are great microphones and, uh, and you get, still get some room. You get air and, and I don't, I, it's hard to, Describe it. I you have to listen to my records. I guess. Yeah, and I and I did read that you said with Diana Krall you uh, broke that rule because you didn't want the piano bleed in her vocal mic. Right. The only reason we did that uh, was because uh, if she made a little mistake on the piano, uh, we were able to fix the piano, or if she made a sang a wrong word. We, we were able to fix that without having to do the piano part over. So we had a big sleeve made, and that went over the uh, piano at Capitol. And that kept the piano, piano from leaking into her vocal and her vocal from leaking into the piano. So we had some options, mm -hmm. and, and it worked out well. That's, that's, 
That's interesting. You know, I spoke to Lou Adler and he said when he recorded Tapestry with my mother, they didn't always get piano and vocal takes because he felt like her vocals was, felt like the piano playing was better when she wasn't thinking about singing at the same time and, and yeah. versa, which can happen with musicians. Um, but but I, I guess you're putting a lot of faith in the performance integrity of the people you're working with and their, their yeah. ability to communicate. Yeah, absolutely. Hank Sacalo was the engineer on uh, your mom's record on Tapestry. And uh, and he's one of my dearest friends. I talk to him once a week. Uh, he's like the rest of us locked down. Uh, but he's a great engineer and he worked with me at RCA after that a lot. He was one of my guys uh, that do all the Eddie Fisher work with me. So yeah, he's a great engineer and that, that's a great album. I, I appreciate that. Well, you know, there's also this thing that you said at Blackbird when you came, when I was there before we were all in lockdown. Uh, you said that there's a way you mic the piano that came from a mistake once where you put a mic and it fell and you, you realized it fell and it was a really good sound and that you've been micing the piano that way ever since. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't remember that story. Wow. God. Well, um, I'll remember it if you tell me where you place the mics on the piano. Well, now I put them both over the keys. Yeah. Over the hammers. I put, I use two M149 and I put them about that far, what, a foot? Yeah. 14 inches over the hammers on the left and the other mic over the hammers on the right. And that's it. That's all I do. Okay, I'm, I'm wondering if there was ever a third mic in there, but probably not. Sometimes <laughs> I would use a third mic on the low end, way down at the piano, but most of the time I didn't. On most sessions, just two mics. And, you know, our friend Nico will sometimes do things like a band will come in and he doesn't, they're expecting all the expensive mics and then he'll use, you know, the cheapest mic to mic the band and the really expensive one for the talkback mic just to mess with everybody's head when they walk in. <laughs> yeah, that's Nico. Yeah, definitely. Well, I also want to ask you about, you did, you were talking about the room. What is it about the chambers at Capitol? What is so special about them as an echo chambers? What do you love about them so much? Well, you know, they're so natural sounding. Um, I love four. Um, Nico loves five, and five is great, too. Um, they're just natural sounding echoes. It's not, you're not getting slap or anything. You're just getting a nice warm, open sound at the tail end of, of vocals and things. I use it mostly on vocals, but on big band, uh, on the brass, and certainly on violins and and uh, cello and violas. Uh, yeah, so they're, they're just so natural sounding. And they have eight of them. And uh, I've, I've never had the chance to use all eight at one time. But maybe one day I'll get to do that. So that'd be fun. That would be. So when you were writing your book, what was that like to sit down and, you know, focus on this literary thing after, you know, doing yeah. some audio work? It was, it was really, really difficult. Maureen made it really easy. And what she would do is she would come over on Saturday. It took us almost three years 
to write that book. But she would come over on a Saturday and uh, turn on the tape machine and we'd just talk. And she'd ask me about things and I'd just, and then things would pop into my head. And, and, and we did that for almost three years when the book came out and she did an amazing job, I think. So I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy with the book. I get a lot of great feedback on it. And a lot of people uh, tell me how much they learned from it. And that's the main reason I, I, I wrote it. She did a great job. And, and I'm so glad. I mean, you, you are a national treasure. <laughs> and we don't want to lose any of the, uh, the fantastic experiences you have to share. So when, you know, when you're talking to the younger generations of up-and-coming recording engineers, what do you most want them to know and think about? Well, the most important thing, I think, is for them to follow their heart and make sure this is what they want to do. And, uh, and if it is and they want to make a lifetime out of recording, then... You know, then they, then they dive into it. You know, if you have a passion for something, you'll do it much better uh, than if you didn't. You know, if it's something you just had to do. Yeah, I, I advise them to learn as much as they can. And if you're lucky enough to be working at, you know, RCA or Columbia when they had their studio or any of the rooms around, if you were lucky enough to be like an assistant or a runner, and you see different engineers coming in all the time, watch what they do, learn what they do, and then listen. And if, if you hear something you like, remember that. That's the way he put the mic and he had them set up this way. And I always tell him, like Tommy told me, buy a little book and write down notes, what mics, how to set up. So yeah, it's, it's again, if you have a passion for it and you have some talent, you're going to do all right. But, uh, you know, I just, I, I see a lot of them in, in guys that I think would make great engineers uh, who kind of drop out because they're not moving up fast enough. And, uh, you know, that's the way it is today. It's, it's, you know, there's not a lot of places where you can get that kind of training. Some of the schools are great. You know, Blackbird is, is great. Uh, Berkeley, you know, it doesn't get much better than that. So I advise young guys to go to school and get some basics and then uh, hopefully get a job. And and what I, I used to advise people, I don't anymore because there aren't that many studios, but there used to be a bunch of studios in L.A., small ones all over. And I would tell them, get your resume and go to each studio and put your resume down. Then wait a week and go back to every one of those studios and put your resume down again. And keep doing that. Sooner or later, somebody's going to look at you and say, this guy really wants this job. Let's give him a shot. And you get a break. And you get in and, uh, and you're off and running. That's great advice. You know, I'm, I'm curious because you started in the 50s. When was the first time that you saw a woman in a technical setting? Wow, the first time a woman in a technical setting. Boy, it took a while. Uh, Armin Steiner had uh, a woman uh, assistant there, Linda Tyler, who was fantastic, by the way. I, 
I worked with her on about 10, 12 albums at least. And then uh, Capitol uh, had Leslie Ann Jones, who uh, we all know about her now. She's been, been amazing and she's wonderful. And she's a, a great inspiration for other women to get in. I encourage women to get in. We don't have enough women. Um, we need more women in the business. I think we need a little more of that feminine touch or something. So, yeah, when I can, you know, I go to classes sometimes, talk in a class, and there'll be one woman of 40 guys. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say, hey, this, this, something wrong here. This yeah. is not, this is not a job like a truck driver's job. You don't have to lift weights. You got to be able to move a, a, a boom around, but most women can do what we do. Yeah. And so I don't understand it. And I, I don't know if this is bullshit or not, but I've always was told that women had better hearing than men. Now, I don't know if that's a fact or if it's just a made up story, but you know, I, I don't know too many women. My wife will hear things. Uh, when I play back, she'll tell me things and I'll look at her like, what? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, she'll have heard something. So, yeah. And Maureen Droney, who wrote my book, was a t- terrific assistant engineer. Yeah, it is It is an interesting thing because when I was at Blackbird, it was me and one other woman and guys, you know? I know, I know. You know, talking to Mark Rubel, you know, our professor, um, it's not anything, it's schools aren't turning women away. It's it's something in, you know, the culture and the psyche that it's just not considered uh, feminine or, uh, I don't know, we just have to get a different message out to people, really. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Sylvia Massey is a great engineer. Look look, look at her and, and Leslie Ann um, Jones, another great engineer. You know, there are a lot of great women around uh, who are making records. Mm-hmm. So I, I know they, they try to uh, promote more women in the business, but uh, I think we got to do it a little more aggressively. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's always nice. Yeah. To see a woman at the console. I always, I always smile when I see that because it's just, you don't see it too often anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me about starting um, the producer and engineer wing at the Grammys, like how that came about? Oh, that came about, oh God, my dear friend, Eddie. Yeah. He, he, he's, he was the one who started it and uh, he called me and, said they were going to start this thing. I uh, I said, absolutely. I was number one. I had the first card with number one on it. And it was uh, a dollar a day. I remember that's, that's what the the uh, dues was to be in membership. And, and we got a ton of people right at the beginning to get started. And, and that went on. It was doing really well. And then... Uh, some way, and I'm not sure how this came about, but it tends to merge with the Recording Academy. Oh, and it wasn't originally supposed to be that? No, no, it wasn't. But then it became the producers and engineers wing and that kind of thing. But the start was uh, Eddie, Eddie with this dream he had. Yeah, and, and it, it seemed to uh, work and... You know, God, I don't know how many members are on the P&E wing now, but I'm sure tons. 
I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good for I'm, you. Yeah. I'm proud to be. Um, talk about Ed Cherney. I mean, you know, I was at the village and he was there a lot and everyone in the business loved Ed so much. And we yeah. were friends. can you talk a bit more about Ed's work? And Oh my God. Eddie and I would talk on the phone every day. If I got in my car and I was driving the Capitol, I'd get a phone call from him or I would call him. And we would just, he had me laughing all the way to, to Capitol. We became really, he was my best friend in the world at that point. Um, and, uh, and we just, you know, he'd come over to the house for dinner with, with his wife. And, uh, you know, it was just a great, great friendship. And he had the greatest sense of humor. And, and he always had me laughing. And we'd be in New York together doing something and uh, hanging out. And it was just, he was a fun kind of guy. And one of the greatest engineers ever. You listen to some of the records he's made. Unbelievable. You know, he, he was so talented. You know, when he got sick and we, we didn't realize how bad it was at the time, you know, we, we kept thinking that, you know, he'll be all right. And it just kept getting worse. And, uh, one of the saddest days of my life, you know, I lost Eddie. I lost Tommy LaPuma. I, I lost Johnny Mandel, Klaus Hogan, some of my dearest friends. You know, that's the problem with getting older. You, you start losing some of the people along the way. Yeah. I'm sorry about all those losses. Oh, hey, you know, I, yeah, the, the great thing is I, I had them all in my life, and I got to enjoy them all, and I got to learn from each one of them uh, because they were all so brilliant in what they did. And I learned different techniques and, and different having a different attitude about things. And yeah, yeah, it was very special. I just want to ask you, you know, during lockdown, how is this affecting everything in the recording? <laughs> it's affecting everybody. You know, Capital still isn't open. Um, the Village opened and I mixed uh, the new Diana Krall album there. And boy, that came out amazing. And, and then, uh, Steve Jenowick and Larry Klein and I did the uh, oh, uh, Melody Gardot album, and uh, and that came out great. I, I'm not sure when that'll be out. I know uh, Diana is out September 18th, but I'm not sure about uh, Melody. So you you actually went into the village with masks on and and mixed. Yeah, we stayed six feet apart. Uh-huh. We had masks on, and Jeff Greenberg, who owns the village did an amazing job of cleaning everything up. He even put special things in the air conditioning to kill viruses and stuff. I mean, it was amazing. I felt totally safe there. And the, there was a mix room in another room, and Steve was able to set up in the other room with his Pro Tools rig, and he and Larry would work on things there while I was mixing in B, Studio B. So you could remotely interact with each other, not even be in the same room. Right. We could yell at one another. We were <laughs> that close, you know. It wasn't that we uh, we were too far away. Yeah. And if something I needed some info, I would ask Steve. He would come in. I'd get up and walk away, and he'd go down and fix whatever had to be fixed. 
and then he'd leave and I'd go back. And we all went, wore masks, and uh, and none of us got sick. And that was, oh, that's over a month ago. That's really brave. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, especially with all the years you've got on you, to, to go in there and say, I'm going to go mix a record with a mask is really, <laughs> that, that says a lot about your work ethic and enthusiasm. Oh, thanks. You know, I never missed a date ever for being sick. I I remember one day I was on a, a session. I was so sick. I would, every time they'd had a five-minute break, I'd run into the bathroom and, and ch- up chop, you know, and then come back and, and go back to working. So I don't know if I cut anybody else sick doing that, but those are the days when no matter what, I was going to be there. You could always count on me. So, and I'm still that way. I'm always on time. I hate people that are late. Um, I don't hate them. I dislike them. You know, I, I just, uh, I tell all the assistants that I know and talk to them about being on time, being early. It's better to be sitting around having a cup of coffee and you know everything is working. And that's what Steve and I do. We, If I have a one o'clock date, Steve and I are in the studio at 10 a.m. And we put up every mic check on all the mics for phasing. Uh, we check all the chambers. Um, you know, everything is checked out. So if it's a one o'clock date by 1230, Steve and I are having a cup of coffee. We know everything's working. And the musicians are just starting to show up. And then we, the other thing we do is if the bass player walks in early, I put him in and I said, play a little. I'll get a sound on him right away. Same with the drummer. Uh, or if it's... A, a, a drum guy that's setting up the drums, I'll get him to play a little bit. So I get a little head start mm-hmm. on it. So when the downbeat comes, we're ready to go. And then I go out and I listen in the uh, studio to what's going on. I stand right by the arranger. And uh, then I come in and my job is to capture what I heard out there. And uh, I try to do that the best I can. Well, it shows. And I was thinking when I was doing the Zoom session, I thought, okay, I know Al is a, at least be there an hour ahead of time. Does that apply to Zoom? I was there 10 minutes early. (laughs) But, um, you know, right now with all the political and social landscape of everything going on and and you haven't, having worked with Sam Cooke and you've been around all those jazzers and, you know, the whole landscape of music and socio-politics in in the 60s. How do you see music, how do you see what you do in the studio and the music and the musicians coming in as in some way being connected to the larger thing in the world of what's going on now, rather than just a consumer-based thing, you know, of going out to sell records? Whoa, boy, that's a tough one. Can you repeat the question one more time? Yeah, okay, so you were working with Sam Cooke, you know? Yeah. You were working with Sinatra. You were working with people, you know, Ray Charles, people who who, during the civil rights movement in the 60s, and they weren't just making music for consumers who wanted to hear the music. They they were representative of a voice of of people and, and their lives and some of the songs that they sung were also became like, you know, theme songs of the times. So 
how does, in your mind, does that relate to records that are either being made now, could be made now, um, in the future, post-pandemic will be made? I mean, because the way things have moved, everything's become very compartmentalized, you know, where it used to be. Exactly. You know, the greatest thing about Sam Cooke and Frank Sinatra, and they are two of the most imitated singers in the world. And the thing about them is that you captured everything at one time. And if there was a little mistake somewhere, it didn't matter because the emotion was there. You know, uh, Frank Sinatra, you know, he, every so often he'd go off pitch, but didn't matter, you know. And, and with Sam, he had such a good time in the studio recording and it reflected in the music. So those, those guys were my idols. And, and what's happening today is, um, Everything's got to be perfect. You know, you pitch the, the voice till it's perfect. And nobody sings like that. Nobody. Not even the great old singers. Everybody had little intonation problems at times. So, you know, we fix everything. We take the heart out of a lot of the music. And, uh, and that's a big disappointment to me. And I try to stay away from those kinds of things if possible. You know, the nitpicking of little things, uh, you know, taking a T from one place and adding it to a word somewhere else, you know, things like that. It's just it's beyond me. I, I just, I could never make, go that way or do that. So I leave that up to other people. Well, that, that's interesting you say. I mean, it brings me to, you know, if you're working with an artist who isn't, I mean, have you ever worked with an artist who isn't trusting you and is telling you how to do it against the way you feel to do it? Yeah, a few times, but I won't mention any names. Okay. But, you know, we have arguments and and that's it. And you know what? My line is always, look, if I'm not, you're not happy with me, let me know. And uh, I'm happy to walk. Right. Well, I think they'd probably welcome that you have an opinion because that's so much more valuable than somebody just agreeing yeah. with what they say. Yeah, I agree. This has been so wonderful. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, I mean, we've covered so many things. I, I did hear a story once. I don't know if it's uh, something you want to talk about or not, but I did hear a story from someone that you once had fallen off a ladder and it, it temporarily affected your hearing. Yeah, and I've yeah, I lost uh, I lost a lot of the hearing in my left ear. I fell off a ladder. I just moved into a house, and the ladder in the garage, and it slipped out, and I fell hit the back of my head. I was in the hospital for a while, and um, I had a lot of trouble, and I didn't think I could engineer anymore. So uh, I talked to uh, Mo Austin, at the, who was running Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. And then Mo set me up with uh, a couple of producers, and I wound up working on uh, Dune. Remember the record, the movie Dune? Yes, I do. Yeah, and uh, well, the music was done by Toto, and uh, so my job. So I got hired by uh, by Dino De Laurentiis. It was her daughter, his daughter, that was directing the movie. He and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name. My job was. He would tell me what he wanted for this scene. I would tell Toto what he wanted 
Toto would tell me what they were going to give him, and I would go back and tell him what he was going to get. And that was my job. And the fact that I was such good friends with all the guys from Toto, it worked out really well. You know, I mean, we got along really well, and we got got it done. And uh, and the movie came out; it was a moderate success. And uh, so that was it. And then one day I woke up, and I had a long lawn. I went out to get the newspaper, and I heard the birds like I hadn't heard in a long time. And my doctor told me that that I had evidently broken a nerve or something in my ear, and that eventually it would, like putting two wires together, would come back. And I I, I didn't think that was going to happen. And so I'm out there to go pick up the newspaper, and I'm hearing all these birds. And I'm looking around, and then I realized I could hear out of my left ear, and my hearing came back. So I called Tommy LaPuma, and uh, one of my dearest friends, and I said, Tommy, I'm ready to go back to work. He said, great, I need you. And he, he got me doing percussion stuff, recording percussion stuff on a Miles Davis record. And that was my start back. So I didn't think I was ever going to work again, to be honest. Well, that that's a happy outcome because uh, yeah. you know usually what you hear about hearing isn't such a happy outcome. I that, know that's that's beautiful. It, you know, I need to ask you about one thing, which is um, Atmos. I know Steve is heavily into that. Steve Janowit. Um but but where where are you with that? How do how do you feel about all the you know for people who don't know what that is? Instead of having yeah. stereo, it's 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 yeah. all around the room. Right, and you. Can listen on earphones and it's behind your head and everything. Yeah. I'm okay with it. You know, I think Nico and I are going to do a few things together. He's really into it and learning everything he can about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've got a couple jobs to do. And so I thought, well, hell, why don't I bring Nico in and we do these together? And uh, because he knows more about this than anybody I know at this point. And uh, and we can come up with a nice product, and you know I'll split whatever with them, and so we're okay with that. We're gonna start doing that. I think we got some things coming up uh, beginning of September. And, so, and what's the application for it? Is it for movie theaters or is it for events? I mean, well, we don't know at this point. A lot of people are having it done just to have it because they want to then find out where it's going to go and how, uh, how successful it will be. Uh, I think earphones are going to be a big part of it because uh, kids can plug in and put the earphones on and they'll hear stuff behind them and on top of their head. So uh, that may be a big factor that, that they can hear stuff like that. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I thought 5-1. When we started, I was doing a lot of mixing at 5-1. And I thought that was going to go over big. And it didn't. It didn't go over at all. And uh, so I'm concerned a little about what's happening now but with Atmos. But we'll see. Yeah. See how it goes. It's a big ways from mono. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A long ways from mono, right? Absolutely. 
Well, you enjoy the rest of your day. I thank you so much, Al. It's been, I thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, you're welcome. Say hi to your mom for me. I sure will. And you too. And take care of yourself. Yeah. Let me know. Keep in touch. Let me know what you're doing. Okay. I would love to do that. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. A wonderful human being and the best of the best at making records. That was Al Schmidt. Al was sitting outside in his backyard and we could hear birds in the background the whole time. I loved his story of how the sound of birds signaled his hearing had returned. I was more than happy with his generosity, spending this time talking to me, but then he emailed me and said he had more to say. So we spoke again three days later on August 7th. Tune in for part two next week. If you've been enjoying Song Chronicles, it's a labor of love, so please leave your feedback and reviews on Apple, YouTube, Podbean, or wherever you stream. I'm your host, Louise Goffin. Thanks for listening.